Today we continue our series in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10, and the title for today's message is Trusting the Sacrifice of the Son, Part 2. It's a continuation of last week's message from Pastor Jesse, and in fact is a continuation of the week before that. Really, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are just one long, dense argument that's supposed to reach its climax today. We'll see if we're able to accomplish that. Tim was making a joke like, Nathan, we're going we're gonna to set you up so well. It's just going to be a, such a juicy pitch that you better hit a home run. So with that pressure in mind, we dig in today. Once again, remembering the gift of the Son's sacrifice, the death of Jesus himself. So start with me in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And if you skip down to verse 11, kind of in this same type of tone, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. One of the things that comes out right away to me are the, cons it's the consistency theme of this not being enough, futile efforts, continually offering sacrifices every year. Uh, the worshipers, they will never, they will continue to have consciousness of sins. They have a reminder of sins every year. It's impossible for these, bull these bulls and these goats and their blood to take away sins. The continual futility. It reminds me of the ancient myth of Sisyphus. I don't know if you've heard of Sisyphus, but he is a Greek king in ancient lore that was cursed to roll a giant boulder up a hill again and again. And just before he would get to the top of the hill, the boulder would roll back down the hill, back down the hill, and he'd have to start all over again. It's labor, it's endless struggle, it's eternal labor, strife, futility. And I think that's one of the things that we see here. It's also one of the things that I think is true of our modern day. We personally have no shortage of metaphors to describe this experience. We have the rat race. We have the daily grind. We have the survival of the fittest. We feel like we're on a treadmill or a hamster ball just running around in circles getting nowhere. It's the Einstein quote that insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. That feeling waking up in the morning and just already, before you've done anything, just being hit by fatigue and exhaustion, the dread, the weight of responsibility that threatens to crush us every single day. It's the coffee you drink in the morning, just hoping this caffeine will be enough to get me through. I think the myth of Sisyphus is true to our current experience. But I actually think the story of the Jewish priests says something even more significant. Yeah, there's the struggle against this futile effort. But they recognize that in this boulder, running it up and down the hill again and again, more often than not, the greatest boulder is our own heart. 
the greatest boulder more often than not is my own art. Here's what I mean. Let's go through the verses once again. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, what's that talking about? Continuing on. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, the ultimate goal was for these sacrifices to remove the consciousness of sin, but it wasn't able to do it. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, the constant weight of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the Jewish priesthood had a way of constantly remembering their sin, that this was the ultimate crushing weight they felt. I don't know if this is our current experience, though. See, I think today we might not realize that we actually relive the story that happens in the Garden of Eden again and again. The story of the Garden of, Eden, Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided they wanted to redefine good and evil on their own terms. They rejected and rebelled against God. And then after that, they hid. They tried to hide from God. And I think that this is true actually to our experience more than we realize. We recognize the weight of the things that we should do or should not do. We know that we should encourage our children in the things that they're doing. We know that we should offer support to our spouse uh, with chores around the house. We know that we should call our parents and uh, check in on them as they live in loneliness. We know that we should put some sort of software onto our devices to avoid going to websites that sexualize and objectify women and men. We know these things, but rather than actually confronting our inadequacy, we actually have an incredible ability to hide. This might be in a variety of forms. It could be through alcohol. It could be through friendships. Probably more often than not, it's sitting on a phone. Uh, but I think that where this comes out the most is how masterful we are at projecting the things that are good about us, wearing a particular type of mask, and hiding the things that we don't want people to see. We show our virtue and we shield our vice. I'm at a point now where I can really tell how well I'm doing in terms of my spiritual maturity and walking in faithfulness to Jesus, largely based on my screen time on my phone. It tells me, am I hiding or am I actually living in the honest truth and the light? Contrast that with the picture of Israel who, in verse 3, they had a reminder of their sin. It was not something they hid away from. I actually think it'll be important for us to enter the story of Israel to our best ability and to try and recapture the sense of being reminded of the weight of sin. So what I want you to do is to imagine that you are a priest. Yeah, imagine thousands of years ago you are a priest in the temple. Imagine the sights. Imagine the sounds. And imagine the smells of a system designed to remember that garden story. It's Saturday, that means it's Sabbath, a day of holy rest. And it means that you are carrying bread, freshly baked on a golden plate. Just breathe in one of the greatest smells on planet Earth, freshly baked bread. On either side of the temple are five tables covered in gold. You and three other priests replaced last week's Sabbath bread. You're reminded of the first Sabbath. 
when God created all things and on the seventh day he rested. That was actually supposed to go on forever. This bread with utensils and plates and cups reminds you that you were created to enjoy eternal rest and eternal communion with God. It was supposed to be an eternal feast. Flickering all around you are candlesticks, again, five on either side, each shaped like an almond tree with seven branches rising, each topped by this flame. Hear the crackle of the wick all around. See the lights dancing and the shadows moving around the room. The almond tree candlesticks light up this place and you see that it is dazzling with gold. It's confronting and startling. It covers everything, the candlesticks, the tables, the floors, even the walls themselves. Carved into these golden walls are trees and flowers. And alongside the almond tree candlesticks, you are reminded again of the garden you were created for, bursting with life. Now, amidst these trees and flowers on the walls, you see these carvings of strange, mystical, almost terrifying humanoid creatures. Four wings envelop these angelic beings. You recognize them as cherubim. At the back of the room, there are these two large, extensive curtains. They're stitched in blue and purple and crimson and white. And they also have cherubim embroidered into their fabric. You are reminded once again of the garden. When Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden, the way was shut so that they could not return. It was guarded by two of these creatures, two cherubim. It's a reminder that you cannot enter the presence of God. On the other side of those curtains is the most holy place where God himself dwells. You cannot enter. Only the high priest can, and then only once a year after extensive rituals and consecration, the cherubim guard the way. Just before these curtains is a golden altar, four horns on the corners. It's the altar of incense. Another priest walks up and lights the incense. We're not talking like pumpkin spice here. You smell the frankincense, slight hints of citrus, like maybe rosemary. And paired with the galbanum, this rushing fragrance that's almost earthy fills the room. It's in your nostrils, it's in your mouth, it's in your lungs. It's almost like you're in a forest. Or maybe we could better say, it's almost like you're in a garden. With the incense lit, you also know that there must be heat coming from somewhere, coals of some kind. You actually know where those coals came from. You were just there. You remember the animal's eyes. You remember the smell of burning flesh. You remember the blood. You turn and you exit the room and you uh, enter the court. The centerpiece is a large brass structure up a ramp the altar of burnt offering. As you approach it, you see a young child enter, leading a young goat towards you. The child nervously walks alongside his father. You approach the child. You say, hey there, what's your name? And the child responds that their name is Jacob. 
You ask Jacob how old he is, and Jacob tells you that he's seven years old. You know, a little conversation, you mention the goat that they brought, and you say, oh, Jacob, like, I see you brought a goat. How, how old is your goat? And he tells you that it's seven months old. It's like, okay, wow, and have you, have you grown up with your goat? Have you named it? And then Jacob says, yeah, he's, he's Billy the goat. This is an imaginative exercise, and your heart is already wrapped around that goat. I know it is. Picture what happens instead if you've known this animal for its entire life. And it's not like the way we would know it today of like transient, you're in and out of the house, you're all over, you can drive an hour and you're like hundreds of kilometers, maybe not hundreds of kilometers, I don't know what the math is, but you're gone. Versus back in the day when you grow up, you live alongside, you work alongside these animals. Imagine that type of weight. Imagine the weight of a child who's grown up with this animal and who perhaps unwillingly brought their goat to the temple. Now imagine again your role as the priest. You look the animal in the eyes. Maybe you tear the animal away from the child's arms. You lead the goat up the altar ramp, and as you reach the top, you see the stains of the earlier sacrifices. Their blood is splattered across the brass altar, trickling down the sides. Drip. Nearby, the flesh of another goat burns on a grate and you smell the meat cooking. As you've done many times, you take your knife, the one you sharpened earlier this morning, you look, in the animal, you look the animal in the eyes. Every day, you look these animals in their eyes. You take your blade and you position it against the goat's throat. And in one swift motion, you hear that sound that you just can't get out of your head the slice of flesh, the splatter of blood. And with the lifeless body before you, you are confronted by the fact that this animal dies for nothing it's done. It dies because of sin, because of human sin, because of our sin, because of my sin and your sin. So you know that you need to be cleaned, but you can't be cleaned. If you could just take your sin away, this would all end, but you can't. You are stuck in the cycle of sin and sacrifice. So you, the priest, finish the ritual. You take the meat to the grate. You return and you find another child, another goat to be offered, and you take the goat up the ramp. Maybe another way to put it. You go up the hill of Sisyphus. You carry that rock that threatens to crush you cursed to an eternal struggle against sin. This is the weight of the Jewish temple and priesthood, as the author of Hebrews is putting it, cursed to an eternal struggle against sin in futile efforts attempting to deal with our sinfulness. Out of that, I think that the author's words, starting at verse 5, just carry so much significance. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ, that is the king, literally Christ means the anointed one and could be said as the king. When the king entered the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. He's saying to God himself these words. Then I, that is Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. His body himself was prepared in the placement of these sacrifices. It was written in the scroll of the book. It's been something that's been anticipated for centuries. Continuing on, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to do the second. He recognizes that this constant struggle, this futility, this fatigue, and the labor of unending struggle is not the ultimate goal. It's the first thing. The earlier words are a shadow of the things to come. That's verse 1. And it reaches verse 10. By that will, by that desire, by that work. We have been sanctified, that is, we have been made holy, we have been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Continuing on, we are reminded of the way of Sisyphus. Every priest, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The rock of Sisyphus, that is actually the rock of our own sin, that threatens to crush us, that we're just always trying to push up the hill, it will never be taken away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I think of the rock of Sisyphus. I think of him drudging up the mountain. I think of the plodding that comes step after step for eternity, stuck in that loop. And then I read verse 14. For by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, in contrast to the plotting of Sisyphus stuck in eternity, there's a new way. Jesus replaces eternal plotting with eternal perfection. In Jesus, you have been perfected for all time. I don't know if you hear that. Like, this is not just a momentary type of thing. This is for all time. This is not a slight improvement. This is perfection. In Jesus, you have been perfected for all time. That's at the core of who you are. Not the constant struggle, not the constant failure, not the strife and the exhaustion and the fatigue. You have been perfected for all time. And beautifully, we're still not done yet. See, that's the recognition that right now you are perfected. Right now you are perfected, and in the future, for all time you have been perfected. But they're still dealing with the past. If you skip down to verse 17 and 18. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So now we're talking, yes, it's the present perfection, it's the future perfection, but it's also the forgiveness of the past as well. It's dealing with all of it comprehensively. Past, present, future, the entire perfection. And we're still not done yet. So here's what typically happens. 
So we talked about the incredible work of Jesus, what he did to perfect us, to wash our sins away, to cleanse us, his ultimate sacrifice. But what will often happen is then you contrast the work of Jesus with the work of humans and you pit them against each other. You kind of treat them as if they're like Tom and Jerry. I don't know if you know the two cartoon characters, the cat and the mouse, diametrically opposed rivals always fighting against each other. Only one can be victorious or the other. This is how we often treat, I think, Jesus' works and the works of humans. So now that we talk about everything that Jesus has accomplished, the only answer is to actually challenge and diminish the work of humans. The book of Hebrews does not allow us to do that. Rather than being some sort of like Tom and Jerry diametrically opposed thing, treats it more like uh, that incredible ice cream manufacturer, Ben and Jerry's. Which, by the way, I can't have dairy, so you would think, why Ben and Jerry's? Their dairy-free ice cream is still unbelievable. I don't know how they do that. It's like they bring something together that is amazing, and it's with that type of wonder and awe that I think we should approach what happens here. We skip two verses in 15 and 16. So we have verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then we move to verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. There's an emphasis here on the law, the commandments, the work that humans were called to, the obedience to God being put on their hearts and on their minds, being capable of something that they would not have been capable of before. Here's to me what's so compelling about this. The common refrain in the Old Testament is this idea of do this and it will go well with you. So there's a phrase in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. So the Israelites were called to be a holy, a set of our people because this is who God was. If they were capable of doing that, things would go well with them. But something's changed here. Verse 16, the covenant that I will make with them after those days, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. In the context of this forgiveness, Jesus is accomplishing something here that out of that, God is going to make his people, his people capable of being obedient. So rather than it being do this and it will go well with you, it becomes I have made it well with you. You can do this specifically in regards to obedience. See, what Jesus does is he takes the commandments and he turns them into promises. The commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, make sure you do it, turns into the promise, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall be empowered by God to love your neighbor as yourself. It brings together the beautiful forgiveness and the work of Jesus and also the empowerment of what humans can do by his spirit now. So hear this. To the dad plagued with regret because he feels like he's failed his kids, you are forgiven. By the blood of Jesus, you have been washed clean. The weight of that shame and that failure should not crush you because he has accomplished forgiveness. And on top of that, you shall love your kids. 
by the power and goodness of God, you shall love your kids. To the one caught in addiction, whether alcohol, porn, sex, technology, whatever it is, and you're stuck in this web, you are forgiven. You are washed. And on top of that, by the Spirit of God, you shall overcome. To the one confronted by the trail of destruction, their anger leaves, that they feel like they are slaves to their own attitudes and their own destructive habits and they can't get out of it. Hear this, you are forgiven. And on top of that, you shall be kind. The promise of Jesus to you is that in him, by his blood, by his death and his resurrection, by the spirit that he pours out, you shall have the power to be kind and to be compassionate. You are not cursed to your own self-destruction. So I want to recap where we've gone so far with three pictures. I've done like an imaginative exercise. If you're a visual learner, this next one's for you. So first picture is the cycle of Sisyphus, where we just go through work and we go through failure, and we go through work and we go through failure. And you continue to try and roll the rock up the mountain and you know that the next day you wake up, it's gonna be at the bottom of the mountain again and you're gonna to have to keep rolling it up the mountain. That is the cycle of Sisyphus. That's the story of our modern day. The cycle of the Old Testament of the Jewish priesthood is similar but slightly different. It's work into sin sacrifice, and then back to work. And you're caught in this cycle of sin. And I will say this, I mean, it seems foreign to us, some of the sacrifices, but if one of the markers of maturity is our own awareness of sin, there's probably a strong sense in which the Jewish priesthood had a stronger maturity than we do today. They were not as willing to just hide away from their sin as we attempt to do now. But then there's a third way that we'll call the new and living way, because that's the language that it will be given in a moment. If you think of verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I think it provides us not with a cycle, but with a pathway. A single offering, there's a sacrifice. He is perfected for all time, there's a perfection. Those who are being sanctified. We talk about sanctification as this idea of continuing to be made holy, and we've been using the word obedience. Perf sacrifice, perfection, obedience. That is the trajectory. You see here, obedience is actually after Jesus' sacrifice, after the perfection that's been accomplished, and now your obedience comes as a result. This is the new and living way that's described in the next few verses. So start with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, here's the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That is the sacrifice piece. We start out, there's something that's happened in the sacrifice of Jesus, whose body was able to open the curtain of the cherubim that blocks the way to the presence of God. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's the perfection. Inwardly, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Outwardly, our bodies are washed with pure water. There's something you are capable of even outwardly. And here's the obedience, verse 23. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's a perseverance that you're capable of. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love. There's actually an embodying of the work of Jesus and good works, contrasted with the earlier dead works that have been, been talked about in the book of Hebrews. Your works are not dead now, they are good. Not neglecting to meet not neglecting to meet together. There's a community that happens, but encouraging one another. This is a place of encouragement, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, and there's a place of hope. Reminded, being that it is uh, the first Sunday after Remembrance Day, reminded that this is the time where many of you, uh, as we have started to do, uh, start decorating for Christmas, and the holidays start coming out. Michael Buble begins, and I, uh, I reflect on a uh, moment I had with a professor at Briarcrest where we were starting to talk about Christmas decorations and he just kind of uh, was subtly said, oh, like at the end of time when all said and done, what's going to be the greatest moment to reflect on, the greatest holiday in human history? And being at Bible college, we know, okay, like it's not Christmas, it's going to be Easter, it's going to be Jesus' death and resurrection. So we say that to him, he's like, nope, don't think it's going to be that. So now we're confused. And we say, is it Christmas? Like, I don't think it's Christmas. No, those, will be, those, are, those are very important things, but I think it'll be something different. So now we're throwing it out there, like National Boyfriend Day? Like, <laughs> what's, what's going to be the most important thing here? Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is referring to that moment when Jesus ultimately returns. That's the ultimate hope that we are pushing for. The day of the Lord when Jesus himself returns. As we close, we come to the final verses of our day, uh, verses 26 to 31, which show the other side of the day of the Lord. It's a day of salvation for those who believe in Jesus and a day of judgment on all evil and corruption because for once and for all, those things will finally be done with. I know these, these uh, are things that are difficult, it's even difficult for me to read, uh, but what I want us to do is just recognize that we tend to put up barriers and just, just, just try and put those walls and those barriers down. And here, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, not just like accidental sins, we, recognizing that sin will continue to happen until the day Jesus returns, but if we go on sinning deliberately, if we once again return to the Garden of Eden and redefine good and evil on our own terms and reject and rebel against God intentionally, if we do this after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, for all. It did away with the sacrificial cycle. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is referring to the uh, Torah, the law of Israel. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was, sac by which he was sanctified? In other words, who tramples underfoot the one who died for you. blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think the way that we read this depends largely on our perspective coming in. Your perspective beginning uh, beforehand is that God is a figment of the human imagination. You will read this as a construct of humans attempting to control others in fear. 
If you read this as somebody who's been at the hands of uh, abuse within the church, you probably hear this as the words of terror from an, an authority figure. If you read this as somebody who sees God as uh, determined to see you fail, who's interested in your, uh, your disappointments, interested in your continuing to sin and be stuck in your own shame, you probably hear this as just condemnation and pressure. You hear this as one who feels very confident in what they've accomplished. Uh, then you hear this actually as a word to be given to somebody else. You have somebody in your mind that needs to hear these words of judgment. Just encourage us to uh, hear this from the perspective of how God himself is described here. Verse 29, we are told that the one who is outraged is the spirit of grace. Grace being the gift. The one who is outraged here is the God of the gift. The God who loves to give gifts. This is not the God who is hoping that you fail. This is not the God who enjoys abuse. This is not the God who folds his arms in disappointment. This is the forgiver of sins, the God of gifts, the spirit of grace. Perhaps the best way to read this passage is to recognize that from the vantage of heaven, how confusing it must be for a sacrifice to come that, that forgives your sins of the past, that perfects you in the present and the future, that offers you the empowerment to live the way that you long for, and to still see it be rejected. Like a parent giving their child a gift on Christmas Day that's exactly what they asked for, and the child t crying in tears. The parent is just fully confused. How could this be? See, the judgment of God comes because one day when, he, when Jesus returns, all corruption, all violence, all deceit, all sin itself will no longer even be possible. It'll be fully done away with. It happens. But here's a significant piece. The God who judges is not the God who wants you to taste his judgment. For the sake of creation, God judges. But he's not interested. He does not want you to see this judgment. In fact, he died for you. He sacrificed his own son that you may find life, that you may be forgiven, perfected for all time, sanctified, walked in increasing obedience. And one day, whereas now, like the perfection might only be experienced as this inward healing and slight uh, improvement, one day when Jesus returns, all will be made well. That's his heart for you. Let us take this beautiful sacrifice and also this warning to be careful and give it all in worship to our King Jesus.